Here we go. All right. So let's read these questions. I'm going to read the question, actually, and then we'll read the answer together. The first one is question 10. What are the decrees of God? And then we'll all read together. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And then uh, question 11. The question is, how doth God execute his decrees? And we will read together. God executeth his decrees in the works of creation and providence. All right. So does anyone know why uh, last week at the end of our evening service, somebody uh, said, oh, Pastor Nick's doing the decrees of God next week. And everybody else said, ooh, <laughs> what's the big mystery about the decrees of God? The big mysteries of the decrees of God is that it is so mysterious that our God foreordains all things to come to pass in order to execute his good, perfect, and pleasing will. So we intend to teach you guys everything that God has revealed about himself to us in the scripture, even if he's not totally knowable by the human mind. The doctrine of God's decrees make us come face to face with one of the most practical, but at the same time potentially confusing doctrinal paradoxes of scripture. And that is God's sovereignty, the reality that he is in charge of all things, and at the same time, God has afforded us a degree of free will. So, question, are, things, are there things in life that you can see working, that you understand they are effective and they are practically beneficial to you, but you have no idea how they work? I will give you a simple example. I was driving through town yesterday with my father-in-law. We were looking at these big water tanks that you find up on the hills. And he started to explain to me why these water tanks are up high. And the tanks are up high because the water pressure in your house is typically not delivered to your home by a pump or any sort of like mechanical force. It's all gravity. They pump these water tanks that are up high on a hill full of water. And then the gravitational force of water pulling that water, or pulling that water down pushes a certain amount of pressure into your home so that when you turn on the faucet, you have water. When you turn on your shower, it sprays out at you. It's not just a trickle. So I, for years, I had turned my faucet on and never known exactly how that worked. And it wasn't until now that I got a better picture of it. But I still don't know entirely how that works. The big mystery is, where does the sewage go? And how do they deal with that? I don't even want to answer that question. But uh, that's a simple example of something that you don't totally understand, but you rely on it every day in your day-to-day -day working in your life. Here's a more complex example. The cell is the building block of life. With all of the scientific advancements that have been made, we still don't have the capability of looking beyond the very smallest pieces of what a cell does. We've been able to see with high-tech microscopes these small, simple machines that function, that have a design and a purpose. But because of the limits of what we can observe, we haven't been able to tell what makes those, disease, uh, those machines up or what created their function and their, their programming. And these are all mysteries that only the Lord God knows. So there are things that are beyond our understanding and comprehension, but that doesn't stop us from experiencing the reality of them on a day-to-day -day basis, even though they're not totally clear to us. So tonight, I'm not going to be able to demonstrate the full counsel of God's decrees because God has not shown us everything about his decrees. We're not told all of his will. They are largely secret to us. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 is helpful in this regard. 
It says, but the things that are revealed, I'm sorry, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. God decrees much more than he reveals, but we need to know that God operates always according to these decrees, that he is not a God of randomness. He is not figuring things out as he goes along. He has a distinct purpose and plan for all that he has made, and that the decrees he has shown to us are for our benefit. They're useful for us to know and to grasp insofar as we can. So the rest of verse 29 in Deuteronomy 29 says, But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So do we know everything about God? No. Do we know everything about his will? No. But God, knowing what we need, just as he knows that the sparrow needs to be fed and that the lilies of the field need to be clothed, just as he knows all of the ins and outs of our daily lives, he knows what we need to know about him. And what he has declared, we should value and cherish. We should make every effort to understand and to grasp. So two essential elements of God's character factor into our discussion tonight. Other parts of who he is will play a part. But somebody tell me what it means that God is omniscient. What does it mean that God is omniscient? Knows everything. That's right. So there is nothing to be known, no detail or facet of all of creation that God doesn't know. He comprehends it all at once. It's not that God has got to learn anything. In fact, God cannot learn because God already has everything in mind. He knows all things from beginning to end. So God is omniscient. That's one of the attributes that makes him holy, distinct from everything else that he has made because God as an unmade creature isn't a learner. He doesn't grow. He doesn't develop. He has always been what he is. So omniscience is at play tonight. We also need to consider omnipotence. What does omnipotence mean or omnipotence? Who's got a definition for that? What does it mean that God is omnipotent? <laughs> Christine doesn't even know how to spell that. That's okay. It's all right. Omnipotent, as John said in the back, is that God is all-powerful, that there is nothing good that God cannot do. He is not limited in his ability or his might, that God will never try. Because God always can. Okay? So his omniscience, his all-knowing character, and his omnipotence, his all-powerful character, play into what we're talking about tonight. Um, now let's think about God knows all things. It is possible to imagine a scenario in which there might theoretically be a being who knows all but is not all-powerful. That kind of a being might comprehend all the events in the universe without being responsible for them. But when you add omnipotence to omniscience, when you make God all-powerful as well as all-knowing, now you've got to understand that the being who knows all and can do all has a responsibility to the universe. God can do all, and this plays into the way that things unfold in the world. If something goes wrong and you can do something about it, but you don't do something about it, that reveals something about your character, doesn't it? Much has gone wrong in the world, and God is most certainly doing something about it. He is working his eternal decrees of redemption in all things that happen in, his, in, his, in this world. See, Hebrews 1, or sorry, Hebrews 3, 1, says that he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this adds a further dimension. We have a God who knows all and can do all. But not only that, God is active. 
in all that he has made. God doesn't just create with the word, flip the switch on creation and turn it on and then walk away to see how it unwinds from a distance. God is the creator and he is also the sustainer of all life. But do we understand the extent to which God is involved with every aspect of what he has made? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That means that all things are happening because God is allowing them to happen. This is the mighty power of our God. Colossians 1, 16 through 17 expresses it a little differently, but it's the same concept. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And look closely at 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So God is not just all-knowing and all-powerful, but he is responsible for keeping everything going the way it's going. Acts 17, 28. For in him, God, we live and move and have our being. This is what... Paul proclaimed to those uh, Greek philosophers on the Areopagus when he met with them and showed them the true identity of the unknown God that they were not familiar with, Yahweh himself. So you're beginning to get a feel for the scope of God's involvement in his creation, not just by choice, but by his very nature, by necessity. Because of God, who God is, he must have a directive force in the creation that he has made. These doctrines should make it very difficult for anyone to see God as anything but sovereign over all that he has made. And by sovereign, we mean that all things that God desires to happen will certainly come to pass. They will surely happen, for God ordains all things to work according to his good, perfect, and pleasing will. So then, considering these lofty truths, we must ask some questions. First of all, has God preordained all future events? Yes. Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Don't worry about the predestined part yet. We're going to circle back around to this verse in a few moments. But look at that last half here for a second. God is described here as working all things, not some things, not just the religious things, but all things that happen according to the counsel of his will. Of course, God's will is a synonym for his decrees, and that's what we're focusing on here tonight, the decrees of God, the things that he has determined will happen. We see this also in Lamentations, verse three or 37 of chapter 3. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? It doesn't matter what we proclaim, or what we claim, or what we determine. If God has not ordained for it to be, it will not come to pass. Only God determines the outcomes of the future. So let's think about this in practical um, ways. Is there any such thing as luck if the decrees of God are his perfect will and they will always come to pass? No. No. Hear luck talked about all the time, don't we? People always talk about how they got unlucky because somebody bumped into their car or, uh, or they were very fortunate to get that parking space when it was raining, right out in front, in front of the store. People talk about luck as if it is a real thing. It's quite popular for people to attribute the things that happen in their life to luck. And when people talk about luck, they're talking about a number of concepts. They might be talking about randomization. 
In other words, they might think that there's no sense to what happened, but good some, sometimes happens to us. So if good happens to fall to you on a certain day, then you are lucky. Right? Other people think about luck in terms of statistic probabilities. It's all a numbers game to them. So you know there are a certain amount of times when things are going to go well and a certain amount of times when they won't. And if it didn't go well today, maybe it'll even out. Tomorrow it'll go well for you. It's more about numbers. Others think of luck in terms of favor or disfavor that is shown to individuals by some unknown force in the universe, like karma. Karma is, in a sense, man's kind of invention of impersonal justice. Karma says that if you do something wrong, then there's some gigantic scorekeeper in the universe that's keeping track of that, and eventually something bad is going to come back to balance out whatever uh, thing you did wrong. You'll be, you'll be punished for it. Now, all of those are popular ideas, but none of those ideas do justice to the decrees of God. Life is not random. Life is dictated by a source of power, but it is not an impersonal source of power. It's not karma or some force in the universe. It is God himself. Proverbs 16, 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. When it talks about lots here, um, there was an, mostly an Old Testament way of determining what, what someone should do. It was called casting lots. And it came from the very premise that nothing happens by chance or randomly. And so the people of God would, in conjunction with prayer, calling out to the Lord, asking for his wisdom and counsel, they would scatter some little pieces of, uh, of material or they would shake something around in a bag and they would look at it and they would say, how did it turn out? It's almost like flipping a coin, uh, almost like drawing straws. And they let God, who is in charge of all things, because there is no such thing of luck, determine by that random act, seemingly random act, what they would do or not do. So here in Proverbs 16.33, it says that the lost is cast into the lap. In other words, when you, when you roll the dice, every decision is coming from the Lord. God knows what dice is going to be rolled. He has determined it. What seems like chance to us is anything but chance. Just because you cannot see the designs behind God's guiding hand, that doesn't mean that God's purposes are meaningless. Does that mean that we should try and figure out the hidden meaning in every single thing that happens in our lives? What would be the danger in doing that? What would be the danger in us walking out of here today and thinking, God has decreed all things to happen, so every single thing has a very significant spiritual meaning, and I've got to zero in on every single thing that God is doing to try to see what he's trying to teach me or, or how he's trying to lead me. What would be the danger in that? What's that? You question everything. Yeah, you'd spend a whole lot of time wondering, probably not a whole lot of time in the Word of God. Yeah. I think Pastor Paul uh, prayed for us just a, a minute ago that we would not try to speculate on things that God has not revealed. We should not add to the word of God or try to find hidden meaning or the secret finger of God in, in every falling of a leaf or every turn of the wind. That doesn't do us any good. What it ends up turning us into is mystics who ascribe meaning from God to things that we really want to be happening when they're not even God's intention in our lives. We say that God is endorsing what we want, just because we want it, instead of letting God tell us what he really wants for us. Does God show us everything? No. What he shows us is limited, but what he has shown us is very good. 
And there's a reason why the scripture is being used throughout tonight's uh, teaching because the scripture anchors us to the truth of what we can know in God. We don't need to make these things up on our own or try to come up with wonderful theories on how certain events are the will of God and here's what they are telling us. We have the decree of God in written form in the scripture. And though it is not telling us all that God knows, it is telling us what we need to know of what God knows. So the decrees of God extend to the salvation of those whom God elects. If the decrees of God determine everything that will happen, we should follow that fact to its logical conclusions. And if God determines all future events, then it must follow that he determines the extent of who is saved and who is not saved. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. Now, all things would, of course, include whether a person is going to repent of their sin, trust in Jesus Christ or not. Now, that word predestined, what does the word predestined mean? It is rooted in this word destined or destiny. Think about distinguishing something choosing it ahead of time. God has done more than just looked down the corridor of time to try to see what people will think or feel one day. Remember, God is not a learner. God is omniscient. He knows all things. So if he enacts creation, he knows how it will turn out ahead of time. And because he is the first cause of that creation, he has set it all in motion. He determines how it will turn out. Scripture reveals to us that before we were ever even made, God had chosen that some of us, but not all of us, would be the means by which God displayed his redemptive character. Now, to some people, this upsets the heart. To some people, it's very hard for them to accept the fact that God would save some and not others. But I would argue that it is more upsetting to my heart to think about God setting out to save the whole world and failing to do so. What kind of a God would set out to save the whole world, every soul, and fail to do so? That is a God of limited power. That is not an omnipotent God. It is hard for us to understand that God would not choose to save all. But if we believe that God knows all and that God can do all, then we must see salvation as God's victory, not as God's best effort that didn't totally work, but kind of did. So it makes sense that God would have to choose us, considering that our state of being before redemption is one of spiritual deadness. This is something that is proclaimed clearly to us in God's word. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Look at how the Lord describes our state before we are called out of the darkness and into the light. He says, and you who were dead, dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So the, the simple truth here in verse 14 is that we have this debt. Right? All of us being born in the pattern of the first man, Adam, who sinned in the garden, and ever since every other man that has descended from Adam has committed sin against God, was born with a rebellious heart against him, the one exception being Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. But every other man, woman, and child has a sinful inclination. We desire to do what is insulting to God. And this has resulted in a spiritual deadness of sorts. Remember when 
Adam and Eve were warned in the garden before they committed the first sin that if they were to eat of the tree of the knowledge of fruit and evil, they would surely die. And then it might be a little confusing there when they eat of the fruit and they don't die. They're still alive. That's only partially true. They did die. There was a spiritual death that they experienced in that moment. And ever since when we cry our first cry, when we draw our first breath as babies, we come forward as spiritually dead people. We have a deficit, a deficit in our hearts, an inclination towards wickedness. It doesn't mean that we're not made in the image of God and that we're not precious to him, but we must realize that we don't have the power to do what is right on our own. And no matter how moral we try to be, no matter how many standards of right and wrong we try to craft and construct for ourselves, no matter how much effort we, we try to make to put away evil things and to do what we consider holy and righteous, if we are doing it on our own power, we are doing nothing, zero of eternal value to God. We are dead in our trespasses. God must make us alive. This is not a scenario where God calls out to all the living injured and says, whoever wants a healing, come to me and I'll heal you. This is a situation where all are dead and God comes through the battlefield and grabs some of us from our dead state and raises up again to life, to new life. Individuals who now for the first time can see God and understand him and rejoice in him for the first time ever can do what God has called them to do with joy in their hearts. We cannot choose Christ if we are dead. And that's why here we see passively in this, in this scripture that God makes us alive together with him. And why does he do it? For the, for the together part, right? So that we can be near to him. So that he can glorify his great name in that redemption. Now, as we read on, there are more questions to answer, but I want to, I want to strengthen this argument just a little bit more. I want to show you that Peter agrees with Paul here, because we're going to quote Paul a lot tonight. But the apostle Peter was also a very important missionary in the early church. He says the same thing that Paul does. First Peter chapter one, verses one through two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here in the greeting of his wonderful letter, he shows us plainly that those who are called after God, those who identify with Christ, are his elect. Now some would argue that Peter is simply talking about God's omniscience here, but not about his sovereignty. God knew ahead of time who would reject him and who would receive him, but he did not determine that outcome. Some have described it as like a hallway of time that God peers down to look forward and to see how things are going to play out, and then it is his decree to, to be happy with how things are going to play out and to make it come, come to pass in that way. But that ignores the first half of this passage. Verse 2 speaks about God's foreknowledge, but we cannot discount verse 1, which speaks not of seeing, but of electing. When you elect someone to office, do you look down the quarter of time and see who's going to win the election? And then say, yeah, I'm on that guy's team. No. You cast a vote. You choose. And so it is with the Lord God. As he 
creates as he sends forth life, he knows that part of this life is going to rebel. He knows and determines that part of it will be judged. And that judgment is going to show his glory. He's going to show the world how just he is by condemning those who are sinful and who reject him. But he is also going to show his glory in grabbing some of these rejecting, hateful, belligerent creation and pulling them to himself from their spiritual deadness to spiritual life and giving them a new being, a new identity in him. So we have a God who actively participates in the process of choosing and determining. Election is not a term that is compatible with the theory of God only knowing, but man having responsibility for the doing when it comes to salvation. So the decrees of God extend to the salvation of good men. They also extend to the conduct of good men. I think I skipped one there, didn't I? Here we go. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let's break this scripture down here. It says we are his workmanship. Again, this is not our good decision. This is God's handiwork. This is God expressing his beautiful will, even on the canvas of broken hearts like ours. We are his workmanship, and we are created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, right? For good works, that we might serve him in a way that is glorifying to him. So the creation is not without purpose. He has made us to shine the light of his glory in our lives. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. These were prepared. They were set up beforehand by this all-knowing, but also all-powerful, determining and sovereign God. Not so that we may walk in them, but that we should walk in them. That we would walk in them. So, if someone proclaims Christ, they say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But there is no evidence of good works in their life. You have to ask yourself, is God wrong in this passage of Scripture? Has God failed to create good works for that person to do? Or is this person not being sincere about their profession in Christ? Now, that is only for God to truly determine. But we have been told in Scripture that if there is a true salvation in us, if God has drawn us out of the darkness and into the light, then light will shine in us, not perfectly, but persistently. God will continue to show us His goodness can work its way out in our lives as we obey Him. The decrees of God extend not only to the salvation of good, of, of, uh, good men, the conduct of good men, but to the destruction of wicked men. So Romans 9, 22-23 says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And what this means, friends, is that a God who is a God of decree, a God who makes his will come to pass, has determined in his perfect understanding of what things should be, that it would glorify him well to have a people set apart for himself who will be redeemed, who will be given new life, who will be made able, capable to serve him and love him forever. But it is also good for his glory and for our understanding of God that there are others who are allowed to be reprobate, who are allowed 
to run away from the Lord God and who will not be saved from that destruction. You see the idea of decree here, that God has a story to tell, the main point of that story being his glory. And, and a main theme of that glory being his redemption of broken sinners like us. Now, some would argue, maybe it's best if we just let this be a what if, right? It says, what if God? Maybe this is just a hypothetical. But when you look at the full counsel of scripture, the evidence of this reality is, is seen in several places. And so we go to Jude 4, where it says, For certain people have crept in, meaning into the church, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They were designated long ago by who? That could only mean by God, right? For what? Designated for condemnation. And when Christ puts down the enemy of the kingdom of God and puts them into judgment, that is a glory to his name. It proves to us and shows to us that he is righteous and holy, that he is pure and good. In fact, it is the, it is the end that we all have earned for ourselves. It is only because of the abundance of God's mercy and grace that he chooses to save any of us. The degrees of God determine who will not be saved. The degrees of God also extend to the conduct of wicked men. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. This is Peter talking to the high priests and to several of his Jewish countrymen. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The cross was no surprise to Christ. He knew exactly what he was saying yes to. He knew he would go to suffer, to die, to believe, to be rejected and abandoned. But he also knew the power of the Father would raise him up on the third day. Mm-hmm. Now, beyond that beautiful truth that we all say amen to, we should also say amen to the fact that God, being sovereign and holy, determined all of these things to come to pass. That it pleased him to crush the Son in order to secure this perfect people for himself. And so these men who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, who were out of their minds, that when they said, here, take this insurrectionist, this murderer Barabbas, or take Jesus. Wouldn't you let me release Jesus to you, this man who's done no harm, has broken no real laws? And they said, give us the murderer. Give us the one who's a danger to us. Send him back out into our communities. They were out of their minds. But they were acting according to the will of God because Christ had to be crucified. And it was part of his plan that he would be crucified by the very people who had the word of God in their hands and should have known that he was the Messiah the whole way through. This proves much to us. It proves the weakness of our hearts and minds. And it proves the sovereignty of our God. The question of the day, does this sovereignty, the decrees of God, does this make God culpable, responsible, for the sins of the world. I want to remind you of some of the vast testimony of Scripture that tells us about the nature of God. Not only is He all-knowing, not only is He all-powerful, there is some, something even more important about God. He is good. He is good. 
If God is all-knowing and all-powerful but not good, friends, we are in trouble. There is no hope for us if the one who can do all that he wants to do is wicked, is a tyrant. There is no hope because there is no end to his power. And so I praise the Lord God for this testimony here in John 18, 19, where someone comes up to Jesus and says, Good teacher, how might I enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, No one is good except God. You might know some people in your life that you think highly of. You might even call them good people. Their goodness doesn't hold a candle to the goodness of the creator of life. Our God is not just mighty and wise. He is good and holy. 1 John 1.5 This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that whole first chapter of 1 John and then much of the rest of the letter talks about this parallel of darkness and light. and Darkness representing all that is evil and wicked and corrupt, all that is untrue, but light represents the purity of God's truth his mighty power to do what is good and holy, what is loving and right. Psalm 105, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So no matter what you think about the sovereignty of God, friends, you've got to rejoice. He is a good God. Mm -hmm. He is holy and kind, that he is merciful and patient, that he is long-suffering for us. We have plenty of evidence to prove to us without a shadow of a doubt that whatever God does is good. And at the same time, we have all the evidence to prove that everything happens because God has deemed it so. R.C. Sproul famously quoted as saying, if there is one maverick molecule in all of the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then he is not God. I agree wholeheartedly with R.C. in that regard. He's talking about the decrees of God. He's talking about how all things that come to pass come to pass because God has ordained them to be so. So there is no space in existence outside of God. Everything that happens must happen under his watchful eye and by his permission and decree. All exists because God has permitted so. Now there is a healthy degree of mystery to this doctrine, because that means that the sinfulness of man, the tragedies that we see unfolding in the world, these all happen under the watchful eye of God. And many people might shrink back from God and say, how can there be a good and holy God who sees all and is all powerful, and yet we have these tragedies in the world? There seems to be a discrepancy that God decrees all, and yet we have free will to decide, to choose to do one thing or the other thing. And if you think that I'm going to accomplish today what all the immeasurably greater minds who have come before me have not been able to accomplish, if you think that I will somehow make it dramatically simple to understand one of the most complicated paradoxes in all of Scripture, that God is sovereign over all and yet we still have a responsible free will, then I am prepared to disappoint you tonight. Mm -hmm. Some things are not for us to know why. Mm -hmm. God has not bothered to explain to us the why or the how. He has simply declared it to be so. However, this might help us to comprehend to a degree. When, it, when we talk about responsibilities, we have to understand that there are what theologians call first causes 
and secondary causes to all that happened in creation. Now, am I, as a somewhat free individual, am I the first cause of anything? No, I am not the first cause of anything because God is the first cause of me. I did not begin myself. I do not sustain myself. God puts all things into motion. So there is only one first cause in all of the universe. God is the first cause. Nothing exists without him making it so. He brings all things to life and he brings man to life knowing that man will fall and that God will work something good out of this fall. It is part of his plan. There is no mystery to him, though there is much mystery to us. And so he has ordained not only the ends, but the means for the ends. We often quote Romans 8.28, For God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that is a beautiful comfort to the heart who is in the midst of an unexplainable crisis or hurt. And we just prayed over some of those things tonight. Sister Gloria, your loved one who's going through this radical problem with uh, her diabetes and talked about Ruth's mom almost slipping away from us. We've got Dorothy who's having so many problems thinking straight. I mean, we're talking about some difficult, difficult situations that we find ourselves in. But that is not the end of the story. It is a part of the story. God can work even things like that to a greater good in the overall picture of what he is making. There are also secondary causes to all the things that can come to pass in creation. And when we act out the desires of our hearts, we are fulfilling what we understand to be secondary causes. We could not do anything apart from God. He sustains us. But because God has given us life and the capacity to enact some degree of will, when we exercise that will, God's degree is accomplished indirectly through our decisions. And you've probably seen this in action in your life. Someone has exercised their will and they have sinned against you. Someone has hurt you, has done some evil to you, and it, it broke your heart, it damaged you in some way. Now, when we think about the sovereignty of God, we cannot deny that God was the first cause of that suffering because he created that someone who hurt you. He created this scenario in which they had the ability to decide to do harm to you or not do harm to you. But recognize that God did not directly sin against you. He is not personally responsible for that sin. The individual who has a degree of free will is the one who chose to hurt you. They hold the responsibility for that act. God being sovereign will use that circumstance for your good somehow and in some way if you're trusting him. So he's the first cause. We are often the second cause. But ultimately, all of these causes work to his greater good and to our, our enjoyment if we trust him. We see this example in the Old Testament when God ordained the Pharaoh of Egypt to not allow Israel to leave. Don't you think that in his power, after one little miracle, he could have turned Pharaoh's heart and let his people go? He could have. But the scriptures tell us plainly that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And that caused him to reject Moses' pleas to let the Israelites go into the wilderness and worship their God. Now, to be totally fair here, Pharaoh's heart was hard to begin with. This is not a man who had a soft and noble heart and God came along and made a sinner out of him. This is a sinful man 
who was already oppressing the people of Israel, who was already exploiting their weakness for his strength. This is a man who served foreign gods who were in opposition to the real God. So this is an idolater. This is a man with a hard heart. And God, in his sovereign will, chose to use a sinner as part of the means to the end of a greater glory. And in doing so, he hardened his heart not once but ten times. So that in the process of Moses conducting these miraculous signs and wonders, God might display in very interesting ways that Yahweh, the one true God, is more powerful than all the gods of Egypt could possibly be. And the people of Israel eventually found their escape. Not only that, but in the process of being chased by this hard-hearted Pharaoh and his army, these people who were not a warring people yet, who had been slaves for 400 years, saw the armies of the great nation of Egypt destroyed when God, the word, caused the Red Sea collapse around them. You might know the story of Joseph. Same scenario. Joseph is a man uh, who is used by God in powerful ways, but it was not without tragedy. It was not without hardship and heartache. Joseph had to endure much injustice along the course of his life, first being betrayed by his own brothers and sold into slavery, then being lied about and slandered, having to go to jail like a criminal when he desired to do what was noble and good. But eventually, God used all of those circumstances to redeem Joseph's native people, Israel, and to reunite him with the very brothers who rejected him and sold him away into slavery. God makes something good come from even the worst of what we can do with the freedom of our secondary causes. Friends, do we have a right? Do we have a right to question the decrees of God or to appeal his elections? Romans 9.20 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Now this is a humbling reality, but it's one we must confront because it is so popular in the culture today for people to have this mindset that God is the one who is on trial, that with our intellect and our reason, in our morality, we will put God on the stand and judge for ourselves whether he is trustworthy or not. Think about how backwards that is. Mm -hmm. We are the ones who are on trial. We are not the ones who get to turn around and say, God, God, you can't do that. That is not fair. We are rebels to the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. We have done violence to the word of God. We have disrespected the beautiful love that he has poured out to us Who are we to say that God is unjust in any way, shape, or form? So we don't have the right to question God's election over us. How do we know that what God is decreeing is what is right? Ephesians 1.5, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God acts in truth. God acts in love. You will find nothing that he does that is wicked or corrupt. Everything that he does is true and good, including his election, both of those to salvation and those to condemnation. We should desire the glory of our great God. 
since he is the best of all things. And no one deserves to have their way more than God does. So if this is the decree of God, let us rejoice in it. Let us say amen to it. Let us be thankful that he has shown us mercy in the midst of this when we have done nothing to earn a mercy like that. His will is wise, friends. Ephesians 3, 10 through 11. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is not foolish. He is not mistakenly decreed things and then not thought them through to their ends. God knows all things. We have every reason to trust him. And it does not make sense for us to rage against the will of God. For the will and decree of God will never change. Job 23.13 But he is unchangeable and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Speaking of God, there's no one who's going to fight against God. There's no rebellion that can happen against God. No one's going to create a coup against him. What happened when Satan tried to do that in heaven? Immediate ejection. There is no way to battle against this good and holy God. Ecclesiastes 3.14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Why are his decrees this way? Proverbs 16.4 The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Now, God has no obligation to tell us all of his purposes, does he? He does not have to submit his mission statements and action plan to us for approval. He is God. And we cannot handle the scope of what he handles on a day-to-day basis. He doesn't owe us that kind of an explanation. But we can rest assured that there is purpose behind every small detail of life. Even the condemnation of the wicked is a glory to him. Some difficult implications of the decrees of the sovereignty of God eventually surface. God decrees the difficult, evil, wicked things are going to come to pass. He decrees for some but not all to be saved. He decrees for those who are outside of Christ to receive the justice that they have earned. Now, these represent a great stumbling block for a number of people, and they are, they are the starkest declaration of not only God's might, but also man's weakness. They expose us. And so it makes sense that man in his rebellion would want to reject these things on first sight of them. But if God's decrees will surely come to pass, and if they cannot be changed or overcome, some draw the errorous conclusion that the doctrine of election is nothing less than fatalism. They refuse to believe it because they believe that if God is sovereign and in control of all things, then there's nothing we could do about anything, so we might as well just let it all fall apart. We might as well just sit back and watch the world burn because I don't have any control, I don't have any power, I don't have any free agency, so everything's just going to be the way that it is. No matter what I do, I should just sit back and do nothing. Fatalism is foolish. It ignores the obvious that if we don't know what God has ordained, and he makes sure that in most cases we do not know what he ordains, then we have no choice but to operate on the premise of some kind of free will. We must reap and then see what we sow. We must decide how we will walk, and we must deal with the consequences of our actions. In function, no one is really a fatalist. 
We all make decisions and exercise what free will we have been given. Even if our free will is to simply whine and point the finger at God and blame him for everything that goes wrong, even though we know full well that our own sinfulness is the cause for most of our grief. If we cannot come to terms with God's freedom to decrease some to salvation and some to destruction, then part of the problem is likely that we don't truly understand how much we all deserve destruction. How much each one of us have truly offended the living God. We might look at our neighbors, we might watch the news and think, man, there's so much evil going on in this world, I'm doing almost none of it. And you look at my life compared to these crazy people, I am holy and pure, I'm like a saint. That's misguided speculation, friends. We know the depths of our hearts. And if we would stop the foolishness of comparing ourselves to other sinners and compare ourselves to Jesus Christ, the spotless Son of God, then we would become humble and realize that we are far from noble. We are far from wise. We are far from giving and kind. That our love is like hatred compared to the love of our God. God would be no less righteous if he would have chosen in his decree to condemn the whole of the human race to hell. He would have been no less righteous. He would have been no less loving. He condemned all but eight to death by water at the judgment of the flood, didn't he? And we accept that, believers, don't we? He did it because all were deserving of wrath, even the eight that made it on the boat, even Noah and his family, deserving of the wrath of God. But according to God's perfect will, he chose to display his grace through Noah and his family, and humanity persists to this day thanks to the mercy that he has shown to us. Does God decree all that will come to pass? Yes. Does man have some kind of free will? Does he have responsibility for the secondary causes which result in his sin? Yes, he does. Sometimes our frustration in trying to make those two things work together in our minds is because we're so focused on the how that we don't just simply absorb the what. This is the true reality of the world that God has made. Let us think about it and meditate upon it. Many of the hows of life are not going to be revealed to us, but we can clearly see what he has ordained by reading his word and seeing the outflow of his divine decree. The idea that God's sovereignty, man's free will, can't both be true is, is as much a theory as anything. We don't know that to be true. So we've got to operate in the realm of faith. We've got to use what we have been given. And what we have been given is a decree that God's will is perfect and pure. It's the testimony of Scripture which reminds us that He is good in all things and that He works good for those who are called according to His purposes. And, and friends, as we conclude, consider for a moment, what are the alternatives to confessing the decrees of a sovereign God? If we reject that doctrine, we reject the notion that God does all that he pleases and that he rules over all of his creation without interruption, then we're operating underneath the, sovereign, or the, uh, the authority of a God who is not sovereign. It is dishonest to operate as if sovereignty of God is not true. We see it in the scriptures. We're ignoring so much of what God has revealed to himself. And worse, it makes us think down on God as if he is some dramatically lesser being than he really is. If God is not sovereign, then God is wringing his hands, trying to figure out how he might save the people of the world. He's trying to find better preachers so that we can convince more people, when in reality, he doesn't need people like me to do what he wants to do. 
He doesn't need anything. God is going to accomplish his will no matter what we do to resist it. You can't determine what God's complete decree is. And if you reject his decrees and treat him as something less than sovereign, then who do you have to worship now? Who do you have to come and exalt? Who do you have to, to find peace and shelter and thanksgiving in? For all its intents and purposes, you have no excuse, friends. You can't determine what God's complete decree is. All we've been given is what is laid out for us in his word. So use the practical freedom that God has given to you to obey, to honor, to worship, and to enjoy this God. And when you embrace the doctrine of his sovereignty and his decrees, you will find that it becomes the greatest comfort of your entire life. When you are no longer striving to be what you cannot be, thinking that you must somehow make your good life come about the way you want it to come about, when instead you say, God knows what is best for me, I will do what he tells me to do, and trust him to take me where I need to go. There's such relief in there, friends. Because you're no longer trying to be what only sovereign God can be. Well, we want to give you some time for questions or discussions, so I'm sure that some of what I said tonight was confusing. I know this could have been a several week series instead of a one night deal, but um, any feedback or comments on what we heard tonight concerning questions 10 and 11? You know, like when you said uh, just about the, the working it out thing, the evil, you know, it's like man always wants to blame God as far as the culpability. As we know, God is the one who determines these things, but can be the ultimate for you know, efficient cause using the secondary causes of His creation. But there's no And if you've embraced the doctrines of God's sovereignty and you're struggling because others won't, we should not be surprised that it's a difficult doctrine for people to swallow. I mean, what did Adam say in the garden after the first sin? This woman you have given to me caused me to sin. Right. Trying to put it onto the Lord, trying to, to shift the blame onto some, somebody, anybody other than the self. That's sort of the modus operandi of fallen man and of man's natural heart. So, yes, the sovereignty of God is very difficult for people to embrace. Um, and it shouldn't surprise us that people want to use it as an excuse to not be responsible for their own sin. But if we look in the mirror for any length of time, I think we all know who's really responsible for our sin. God didn't cause me to stumble. 
God didn't, with his great word that he's laid before me that shows me every warning that I need to hear that points me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake, I just ignore that. When I sin, I ignore what God has declared to me over and over again to be good and true. I reap and then I sow. And I think anybody who's want to be honest with themselves will draw the same conclusion. One and then two. Um, so I know that when you're using the word free will, you're not using it in the same way that I think someone who is meaning free will. I hate the term free will because free implies without bound. Right. And that almost seems as if God is now out of the picture. Sure. I wish there was a different term. I guess you could just say will. Um, uh-huh. That's why I, I always try to qualify that, what seems to be free will right. or um, you know, a, a degree of free will. Uh-huh. Because it, there isn't really good language to describe the yeah. freedoms that we have. My question is, 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 so when I talk to people about free will and they say, if you believe that God, if God is omnipotent, um, could he not be so powerful to create his creatures having free will without defying his own omnipotence, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know what the point of the question really is. Mm. I almost remind, I thought you were going to ask the classic question, could God create a rock? It's too big for him to move. You know right. what I mean? And it's like, why would he do that? That would be a proof to, to his lack of power, not a proof to his power. So no, he can't do that, and he won't do that because it's meaningless. It's not good. Uh, so when we think about a person having free will, when we began tonight, we talked about how there's nothing outside of God. So there is no way you could be totally free of him. And here's something mind-boggling. We, we talked about this a few uh, months back in one of our uh, theology nights. God's in hell right now. There is no place where God cannot go. So his wrathful presence is in hell. Those who are in hell are not experiencing the full depth of God. They're not experiencing his love and his mercy. But he is everywhere. So there is no way for man to be apart from God and to make a decision in a corner of the universe that he is not influencing or it just doesn't happen. So we put ourselves into an intellectual paradox when we try to create for ourselves this mythical unicorn of free, free will. And uh, we're all bound by something. Go ahead. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Right of, oh, go ahead. Okay. My understanding of free will is that uh, man has the free will only to do that which is in their nature, such as um, out of our nature, um, you know, before we are uh, regenerated, our nature is evil. And then mm-hmm. even the good things we do are out of selfishness. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then it takes God to regenerate us to have uh, fruits, uh, uh, good fruits. Yeah. I would mostly agree with that. The only thing I would want to think a little bit more on is the fact that I now have a redeemed will, and I can still do what my old will wanted yeah. to do. So I'm capable of doing both right now. Yeah. I don't think it works the other way. Before I was found in Christ, I could not do anything that had eternal value at all. I was dead. Now being alive part of the sadness of this intermediate state while we are in the end days and before we are redeemed fully in glory, we can still do what is part and parcel of our old nature. So that's the only part that I would want to think out a little bit more, try to determine exactly how far that explanation extends. But yeah, I, I like that. Christine, I skipped no, you I earlier. I'm sorry. That, I make you forget your question. That's my bad. Well, no, I forget how I was going to put it. Because... Um, 
When you say that, you know, God has created everybody and we're all made in his image and he just sweeps some of us up. Where he doesn't sweep all of us up. That's right. Is that where faith is a gift? Faith is absolutely a gift. That's right, because faith is not just God's test for us to see which one of us will turn away from our sin. Because what does Ephesians 2 tell us? It says that we are saved by grace through faith and not of works. So that it can boast. It is a gift of God, right? Mm -hmm. A gift. The faith is a gift even. Right. And that's, that's uh, something that's a lot of people good. overlook. They think yeah. that I'm a faithful person, so I chose the Lord, and now he's done all the work, but I just made a choice. But really, what, if we were to be he able to peer, that. he chose us. If we were to be able to peer into his heart, we would see that he has decided, just because of his good pleasure, to use some people for his glory in this way and some people for his glory in another way. And he's got full right to do that because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So none of us deserves his favor at all. Okay, and one more question if I may. Yeah. I don't understand Jude 4. For certain persons have crept in and noticed those who were long before hand marked out for his condemnation, ungodly yeah. persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Licentiousness, and, yeah. Yes. And deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I don't understand that. So it's a warning passage. Um, it's a passage to let them know that, listen, this is part of God's will. He's allowing the church to have to face this kind of opposition. There are people who are marked out before time who are going to try to deceive, who are going to try to work wickedness in the church. And he's, that's part of his plan. He's allowing that to happen. He is not himself corrupting the church. He is putting these oppositions to the church so that they will have to learn to trust in him and to discern between what is good and what is evil. And that is why in uh, 1 Timothy, Paul warns Timothy, he says that you need to put good elders in place because there are going to be wicked men who come and tickle the ears of the people. They're going to preach... You're going to preach falsehood to folks. You've got to be ready for these things. You've got to know that that's going to happen. And that, uh, that we've got to contend with those things is, is a reality of life. So yes, there are some whom God even set aside to play that role. They were wicked already in their fallenness, but he is, like Pharaoh, using them to accomplish the goodwill of strengthening his church and teaching them to be vigilant. So like those um, churches that we were studying on theology nights that... Yeah aren't they don't really preach the word yeah that's they a make little it sound like it's right the word of god but it's really not the hard they part of determining people. that is are those really churches there are a lot of churches that say they're churches right now that may not even be churches mm -hmm. they're not functioning at the very basic level what a church is supposed to be they're not actually handling the sacraments with dignity they're not actually practicing corrective church discipline they're not actually shepherding the flock well. They're not actually preaching the word of God. Are those really churches to begin with? I think more what he's talking about is that true churches that preach the gospel will have to be on the lookout for those who will come into the church. And they, on the outside, it seems like they're there for the right reasons, but they might even be there just to sow dissension, just to make things difficult for the true believers and to try to lead them astray. We saw that in the church of Galatia. If you read the book of Galatians, it talks about how certain men came from Jerusalem and they started preaching a gospel that was like the gospel Paul preached, but it had extra stuff tacked onto it. Yeah, you've got to trust in Jesus Christ. That's absolutely necessary. He died for your sins, but you also have to be circumcised according to the old covenant of Moses. You've got to follow these dietary laws. 
you got to offer sacrifices at the temple. you got to do these things that the Old Testament Jew had to do. And so it sounded somewhat holy on the surface, but it was a corruption of the true gospel. And so he had to rebuke those who were doing that and strengthen the church and make them vigilant so that they might reject those false teachers and cling to what is truly the gospel of grace. John. Yeah, you know, the complexity of the situation, I think the way he looks in a kabbalistic sense, like what Savannah was saying, more it sounded like, I don't think you're saying that uh, libertarianly, we choose God, like in Armenia, we just say, oh, you know, God so loved the world, everyone can believe, and faith is not a gift. I know you're not using it that way. Right. But I think when we look at things in the confessions and even in the catechism, Every event that comes to pass, God is in control of what they need to do, right? So I think the only thing with compatibilism, like if you listen to James White, which I love his theology, but when he's backed into a corner by like this guy Silverman, who's an atheistic Jew, he'll get him in the corner and then he'll start coming out as a determinist, where when we say God determines every event that comes to pass, you know, I think what we're trying to just say when we say He ordains the means as well as the end. Yeah. Right. And Psalm 90 says that, you know, teach us to number our days, and we have a hard to understand. So when we think about that, our days are numbered by God. God is determined the day we die, the day we're born, every event that takes place. So from a human perspective, that scrambles our brains because we know that, yeah, we do things, but it's not outside of the realm of the determined purpose of God. So you see those events line up perfectly to give us the atonement of Christ for our sins. Every event that comes to pass lines up in the perfect plan of God. Yeah. Amen. It's a big topic, folks. Hopefully this will be rattling around in your brains for the next few days as you worship Him and seek Him in prayer. Uh, but I hope that it's been encouraging to you to think about God in these ways. It really, it, for some it offends, but when you begin to see the consistency throughout Scripture of God being the one in control, it begins to become such a sanctuary for the heart. There's so much comfort in knowing that you don't have to strive for the outcome, that God is already making it come to be. All you have to do is be obedient to what he has called you to and know what he has called you to know. You don't have to know it all. You don't have to overcome. He is overcoming for you. So it's, uh, it is a, it's a wonderful doctrine. It's a complex doctrine. And it takes a lot of thinking and a lot of chewing before we can really start to, uh, to, to understand it in a way that's glorifying the Lord. Any other questions before we wrap up? Getting kind of late here. All right. I thought I was going to get much more grilling tonight. That's all right. 
if you think of good questions, if you think of good questions after the fact, like text them to me or bring them up the next, uh, the next um, uh, Sunday evening service where somebody else is teaching so you can grill them. That'd be great too. <laughs> All right, so shall we close the word of prayer? And then if you want to stick around and fellowship for a little while, that'd be great too. But let's, uh, let's thank the Lord for what he's taught us ask that he would help us retain it. Almighty God, there is so much to your character and to your person, Lord. We could gaze upon you forever and be perpetually in awe. You are not like the created things that we often give our affection and attention to, Lord, that satisfy us for a moment and then become dull and old and, and will fade away, Lord God. Their glory is temporary, but you last forever. And so I pray, Lord God, that the depth of your character and your nature would be inspiring to us, that it would be it would be effective in creating a sense of awe and wonder in our hearts towards you. Let us not try to make you simpler than you are, Lord God, just for the sake of us being able to have a simple definition of you, Lord. You are, you are great and amazing. You are simple in that you are only what you are and you will never change. But God, the greatness of who you are is beyond what we can really comprehend. So thank you for having patience with us and please help us to think of even better questions that we might stretch our understanding of this doctrine further. We love you, God. We love your word. Help us to depend upon it and to rejoice in it. In Jesus' name.